back uh, oh 15 years ago uh, someone introduced me to the idea of making films and I often gave tours of Civil War battlefields and uh, one person on one of the tours said have you ever thought of turning this into a documentary film and I said uh, not really but now that you bring it to mind it would be kind of a good thing and so um uh, simply speaking, as a result of that, I... Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Oh, it looks like I'm trying to pull up live. What it does. Yeah. Oh, very good. Okay, I hope that worked. My YouTube just pulled up on the other screen. <laughs> and so I saw myself talking, um, but got a little distracted. Welcome everybody. Thank you very much for joining. I want to give a real quick reminder. If you are not subscribed to our YouTube channel, please hit the subscribe button now. Um, if there's anything that you like that you hear today or have heard in the past, we have about 400 live interviews that are scheduled and available either through our social media platform, um, our hemp hallway that our members have access to, where we publish all of our group meetings, as well as our live interviews, and then of course our YouTube channel. And so we're here today on, on YouTube through our Zoom, and it's working awesome, and I'm super excited. So if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to chime in, drop in the notes, and we'll see them pop up for us. Um, but before we get into too much about GHA, I want to introduce everybody to Kent. Kent, I'm excited to have you on, excited to hear everything that you've got going on. Um, so I, I'll turn it over if you don't mind giving us an intro. I want to know, how, how did you get into this, of course? <laughs> background about who you are, what you do, and then, of course, what brought you here? All right. Well, um, I'm, a, I'm born and raised in Kentucky. And... Uh, uh, lived all my life here. I went to college at Center College in Danville, Kentucky, and law school at uh, Washington and Lee University in Virginia. And I came back here and practiced law for 46 years, both here in Lexington as well as an office in Washington, D.C. Okay. And I had that office for 27 years. And um, I enjoyed, loved the practice of law, really. Um, it's just... Um, I've always had an interest in American history. And um, it goes way back with me. And even during the height of my law career, I uh, wrote books, gave lectures on um, Civil War history, Revolutionary War history, and uh, have always just loved it. And um, uh, back, uh, oh, 15 years ago, uh, someone introduced me to the idea of making films. And I often gave tours of Civil War battlefields. And uh, one person on one of the tours said, have you ever thought of turning this into a documentary film? And I said, uh, not really, but now that you bring it to mind, it would be kind of a good thing. And so um, uh, simply speaking, as a result of that, I tried it. 
And uh, we created a film on called Lee's Retreat from Gettysburg, which was based on a book I published in 2005. And um, uh, it was well-received. It is still being well-received. It's up on our YouTube channel, witnessinghistory.org's uh, YouTube channel. And uh, it has a huge audience. And, uh, but since then, I created a company, first an LLC, called Witnessing History, and then the Witnessing History Education Foundation. And what we do is we produce documentary films on American history, all kinds of American history. And we produce them for purposes of broadcast on PBS and PBS affiliates, the 247 PBS affiliates in the nation. Okay. And the way we move into all those PBS affiliates is that if you make a film that is of high, the highest quality you can make, um, then once it is broadcast by our own Kentucky Educational Television, which is one of the big uh, uh, affiliates in America, uh, then they in turn send it to the National Educational Telecommunications Association which is like a catalog arm for PBS. And if NIDA, as we call it, likes the film, then it will make it available to all 247 affiliates okay. nationwide. And so um, our last film we did, uh, Abraham Lincoln in Illinois, um, uh, was had a tremendous reception uh, when it was first broadcast. And uh, NETA uh, signaled that to all 247 PBS affiliates. And it has been seen and is continuing to be seen okay. uh, on all of those affiliates all across the country, including the Virgin Islands, uh, Washington DC, which is of course not a state, but has its own PBS affiliate. And um, so people are able to look at American history without having to pay for it. We post them then up on our own YouTube channel, and one can go to Witnessing History Education Foundation YouTube, and you can see all of them. And, and they're, they're great fun, and they range from uh, 56 minutes, which is your basically your hour-long program with advertising at the front and back, uh, to uh, an hour and a half. One of them, the uh, story of Daniel Boone, is a two-hour film. And that thing has garnered almost two and a half million views. Oh, wow. That's how popular. And, and, I'll, and let me tell you, Mandy, um, the way we approach doing this uh, and making these films is that, one, they're well-researched. So that what we're telling the viewer is the simple, basic story. We're not trying to get a bunch of talking heads coming in here and giving you their idea of things. It's the basic story. And we, we illustrate the film by the best still images of things we can, usually portraits or paintings that are period paintings, like the portrait of Daniel Boone uh, done from life. Um, uh, we love to show portraits like that. But then we also like to recreate scenes. For instance, in the Daniel Boone film, we have recreated scenes of him in his early life, uh, scenes of him in his first explorations of Kentucky, uh, what became Kentucky, 
Uh, we've filmed scenes of him leading groups of settlers through the Cumberland Gap. Um, we've filmed scenes of he and his compeers defending the settlement of Boonesboro against an attack. Uh, all these kind of scenes, and we film those for, for this reason. And that is, for the most part, most people have never been introduced to a story like that, ever. Yeah. And so how do we expect they would really comprehend some talking head telling them about what he thinks happened? Rather, what we do is we, again, make sure that whatever we're doing and showing is as close to as being spot on as we can get so that we can share that with the viewer. Then they get to see something. In other words, witness the history. And um, they love them. And it, what it does too, and I hate to use the term entertainment with a history thing, but you do have to make history entertaining. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're just sitting there, you know, reading some dense book, just won't cut it. People aren't reading books that much, right. but it's, they are watching television. Yeah, and so that's the whole theory. This the, the theory behind our our um, our success thus far is that. Awesome. So, so you know, your, yeah, go ahead. That being your background, and that's where you you know where your passion is. What led you to this industry, to hemp industry? And <laughs> well. Why? It, you know, a number of years ago, uh, hemp got a huge start here in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And then it um, kind of collapsed. And it was mostly the um, uh, hemp oil, uh, the medicinals, et cetera, uh, that were being um, uh, sold by uh, hemp producers, manufacturers. Um, my interest is in hemp as a fiber because uh, Kentucky's history, uh, the earliest settlement of Kentucky, showed uh, show us that um, hemp was probably as important to those people who settled here as corn or any other uh, 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 plant that you could eat the fruits of. And, um, and the reason for that is they made all their clothing, their hats, headgear, uh, uh, bedding, floor covering, you name it, from hemp. And um, as a student of early Kentucky history, which I, 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 I am, um, you can find diaries of settlers, for instance, at Bryan Station, which was a fortified settlement just east of Lexington, settled by the Bryan family. Daniel Boone married Rebecca Bryan. So this is his wife's family. And um, they were put under siege in, uh, in August of uh, 1782. This is at the very end of the revolution. I mean, the revolution for, for, uh, for all practical purposes had ended in the east along the coast, but across the mountains here, it continued to be fought. And uh, they were surrounded by uh, various elements of the Great Lakes Indian tribes, along with an outfit called Butler's Rangers out of New York. These are really rather vicious characters who uh, were sent here 
to simply try to finally discourage these settlers enough to get them to leave. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, one diarist of that siege uh, wrote that the Indians were, had concealed themselves, uh, one across the trace from the fort was a cornfield. And, and he said they were concealed in the cornfield. Well, it's pretty hard to see anybody who's concealed in a cornfield. But on the other side of the fort was the hemp field. And we know if you've ever seen hemp out in the fields, I mean, it is about as dense uh, a plant uh, as you can get if you get an enormous field of them. And they were concealed in the hemp fields. And when I read that, I kind of went, you know, wow. I mean, this, this plant is as essential to these people as anything, as their food, because of what they can do with it, of, would do with the fiber. And so that immediately got me interested in this, the idea of, well, I wonder what else we could find about hemp in Kentucky's story. Well, of course, Kentucky's story is almost legendary in terms of its connection to hemp. Can you I mean, talk about that a little bit? Like, yeah, I mean, uh, I not, only, not only did the early settlers, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, these are real, these are Daniel Boone's people. Mm -hmm. um, not only did all of them grow hemp, this is in the 18th century, 1774 to, to 1800. Um, not only did they grow hemp, but hemp began to be a crop that Kentucky found, Kentuckians found, could be a great commercial crop. Um, for instance, um, Kentucky didn't raise much cotton. You do a little bit way down in what we call the Jackson Purchase, which is southwest Kentucky near the Tennessee border, mm -hmm. um, but nothing else beyond that. But what Kentucky could do with that cotton, uh, the, 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 the growth of cotton as a, as a, as a money-making crop uh, in the Deep South was that we could, out of hemp, make the bagging they use for cotton. So all of the bagging, and you can imagine how big an industry this became before the Civil War in the, in the first half of the 19th century. Um, uh, cotton was king. And to get the cotton anywhere, you got to put it in a bag. <laughs> There's nothing else. There's no way you could carry it in your arms. You have to put it in a bag, and I mean a big bag. And then you put them on board ships and you ship them. And so here are photography I found of the port of New Orleans, which was our greatest um, commercial outlet for Kentuckians. A lot of Kentuckians were, were invested in Louisiana. A lot of them came from Louisiana. But um, uh, here's photography of, a, of the wharf in New Orleans. And what do you see? Bag after bag after bag after bag of cotton. And those bags all came from Kentucky hemp. And um, uh, hemp, of course, is so versatile. The hemp, uh, uh, the fiber you can use to make almost anything 
I mean, and the proof of the pudding is that by World War II, uh, they were taking Kentucky hemp and making making the some components of jeeps and tanks and trucks out of it. These are the the, the panels around where the the steering wheels were were half made of hemp. Uh, then you get your backpacks, your belts. Some of the clothing was made of hemp. Uh, this is World War II. Parachutes. In fact, Lexington had a parachute manufacturer. Making them out of making the parachutes out of hemp. And I kept thinking, you know, this is a story that yeah. needs to be told. And I'll tell you what, Mandy, um, of course, I'm a lover of history. And I think people, that's how you learn who you are, what you are, everything else is by examining history. Um, there's nothing like saying, truthfully, of course, that hemp has a magnificent story in American history. There's nothing better to advertise that plant and its versatility than to link it with all the generations that have used it before. And this, those generations include some of our most remarkable people, George Washington, was a hemp producer. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson was a hemp producer. Mm -hmm. James Madison was a hemp producer. Uh, I mean, the, the, Andrew Jackson was a hemp. Our own Henry Clay here in Kentucky, who's buried in this town, his house is still standing. Um, he was, of course, Speaker of the House of Representatives in the early 19th century. United States Senator, considered one of the great triumvirate. He, John C. Calhoun, and Daniel Webster were the, were the great uh, orators of their time. But Henry Clay was one of the biggest hemp producers Kentucky ever had and uh, promoted it in Congress and, um, because it was so versatile. And you could make money raising hemp. And of course, Kentucky did. And up to the Civil War, Kentucky became the largest producer of hemp uh, outside of Russia. Interesting. We produced dew-rotted hemp, as they called it. Russia produced water-rotted hemp, uh, which was a, a, a method of, 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 of preparing the, the plant for uh, commercial use. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to rot it. Mm -hmm. And um, but ours became second only to to Russia in terms of the quality of the hemp. And what really got hemp started in America, frankly, was its commercial use in terms of its maritime uses. Um, hemp became the single greatest component of what it took to rig and sail a ship on the ocean. Um, the USS Constitution, this is almost legendary. I mean, people have written about this. The USS Constitution that is still moored in Boston Harbor. Um, it had 55 tons of hemp halyards and rigging. These are all the ropes you see all over the, the masts and what 
how you raise the sails. It's a halyard. And um, uh, all the rigging, rat lines, all this were all made of hemp. And then when you add the fact that the sails were made of hemp, you have a ship that is uh, uh, toting some 80 tons of hemp in the, in the roping and the sails. Now, to, to make turn that into a commercial thing, uh, imagine the type of funds that you could get from raising hemp, just from military uses, the Navy, and uh, then from other types of uses. Uh, but in the Navy, the United States began to be an early exporter of hemp to Great Britain. This is before we became actually a separate country um, because uh, of the, the repeated difficulties of Britain getting Russian hemp. They turned to the United States, turned to America, let's put it that way, before the United States. And so we became an exporter of hemp to Great Britain. Mm -hmm. for its naval use. So the Na British Navy was being outfitted with American hemp. Um, and um, why not the American Navy being outfitted with American hemp, which is of course what happened. Mm -hmm. And um, it's that maritime use that spread this all across the globe um, as a viable, necessary uh, plant to raise. Is that a good uh, start? <laughs> the whole time you're talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, I should snip this. I need to like remember what he said here. And I remember. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, it's great stuff to share and show. I say all the time, like, hemp is not a new plant. We're new to it. We are exactly right. <laughs> no, you know, the, 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 the American Indians, the Native Americans here were growing hemp along the James River, along the Potomac River. Uh, when the settlers arrived in Virginia, and that's 167. Yeah. And, and these, these peoples were raising it themselves. And you wonder, how is an Asian plant? Now, people have said many of them came across the, you know, uh, the, the Bering Straits to what's Alaska and then into, the United, into what became the United States. Um, did they bring it with them? Uh, where did they get the hemp? I don't know, but it was being grown by the Indians, and in fact, you will see documents. Uh, for instance, George Washington wrote once of raising Indian hemp, they called it. This yeah. is the same type of hemp they were raising on the Potomac, across the Potomac River right. and, um, and on the James River. And so the Indian tribes were raising hemp. Um, it's, it's, it's a remarkable, tail really it's i, I love it i could keep <laughs> but you well, see how excited do you see how excited you get though when you think of it the depth of history that that plant represents in the in 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 in, in the in, in the human experience i mean we have been relying on hemp for a long long time and um, what's interesting in reading all this is that you never find any evidence of anybody wanting to smoke it. They want to use it. They just want to use it. They want to use the fiber and they want to use the oils from it, mostly for um, lamp oil. Mm. Um, heck, it's just as good as whale oil. 
And um, my family all came originally from New York and of course, whale oil. I, we still have some whale oil lamps in my home here that the family had. But um, uh, think of hemp oil. Um, uh, it became a great use of hemp was its, its oils. Uh, they even made a butter out of it. Um, so foods, um, uh, medicinals, it was early on used for that, uh, but it's fiber is what really sold it, what really made it something of extraordinary uh, value to Americans. I have a question because there isn't a lot of talk about the history of hemp, right? There's mm -hmm. people talk about history, they go back 30 years. Right. So, I mean, real, the real history are long, long, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years back. Um, mm -hmm. Because you've seen so much of it and understand, what similarities are you seeing in today's patterns as we're bringing hemp back and the war and Russia and you know a few things that you mentioned? What are what are similarities and or differences that you? You're speaking of uh, in terms of. They always uh, say history repeats itself, right? Uh, well, history does repeat itself, right? And because so most people don't want to read it. <laughs> so they fall into the same ditch that they did, you know, back when. I mean, uh, history's there to learn from. I mean, and 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 we cannot produce, un frankly, we cannot produce enough uh, uh, films on on American history. We just can't produce enough of them in this country. Um, uh, we've got to; those things have got to be viewed by as many people as we can possibly get. Uh, because frankly, if people are introduced to history, one, they love it um, and they respect what's being said, the more they see it. Um, it's just that we've got to introduce people again to it. And we've, we've been in a period of time here where people haven't cared about it and frankly denigrated it. You know, it's everybody in history is wrong. Everybody in history has blemishes. And so let's just concentrate on the blemishes. And that's not the way you view it. Well, and it's where history repeats itself. Right? That's right, that's why it repeats itself. Okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm just curious as far as, I, I explained the other day to somebody, I feel like we're in another, you know, hemp for victory campaign opportunity <laughs> as we're moving in scaling up they had destroyed a lot of their equipment or taken it down yeah. at the time yeah. to scale back up um they were going into war, war. right right and so i look at those types of similarities and the influence that the government brought and the opportunity mm -hmm. behind this climate smart partners you know commodity partner grant yeah. that's out you yeah. know that really is for farmers and infrastructure build and you know, regenerative practices, mm -hmm. but also, you know, like you said, all of these benefits that, that hemp has, we're not necessarily sailing, um, you know, off into war. That's not what I'm saying. However, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of similarities that I keep seeing that come up. And so they're tremendous. And, you know, um, we, we, we may not be quote in a war, but the country always it seems and should, whether it's doing it enough now or not, I know I'm not gonna comment, but 
we always should be prepared for war because it has been one of those tragic things that strikes um, the world um, one way or another. And to guard against that is to make sure that you can defend yourself. Well, and, um, and among those things that we learned in World War II with the hemp for victory campaign that was launched, including a film, which by the way, we would love to show excerpts from in this film. Yeah. Um, uh, you ought to have all this being done before the crisis hits so that you can use it instead of relying, waiting for the next year's crop before you can do anything. And, um, you know, the frontiersmen were your great example of this. They grew hemp all the time, mainly because they needed it. And they especially needed it um, uh, to hunt, to, to keep warm, clothing, uh, headgear, um, oils, um, you name it. And um, they did. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, it should be one of those things that we should encourage the growing of because of its tremendous uses. Hemp. Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree. <laughs> I think that it's funny you say, you know, the waiting until we've got, you know, until next year's crop. Yeah. COVID really put a stress or a, a level of importance back to where our supply chain is right and then put a real focus on our need in the u.s to do just that better prepare yeah, yeah it did yeah well, it did. go ahead no you go ahead you finish your question i was going to say we're just continuing to see the pressure right with supply chain not just here in the u.s but across the world and different awesome. things happening That's um, exactly right and That's i think exactly right. Hemp is a solution. Hemp is an opera. I should say it's an opportunity for us to really impact that supply chain through multiple different, you know. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, the, the best thing for this country is for it to be its own producer. Yes. Yeah. We don't have to look say, for imports. And that's true of across the board of all types of things. We should be our own supplier whether it's oil, gasoline, hemp, whatever. I mean, we should be our own. And uh, that should be focus number one. Yes, yes. Well, and you see over and over, <laughs> that's when tragedy happens, right? Yeah, and yeah. I'm dependent on other, other countries, other solutions. Yeah. Okay, so when you were out finding all of your data, right, and you really started to dive into the history of hemp, can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Like how, because there's not a lot of data, a lot of it was really destroyed. And so, well, yeah, um, I, it, it was a little easier okay. um, because I, I'm, I'm from Kentucky. <laughs> because of the fact that Kentucky was a, um, such an enormous producer of hemp. And, and hemp is so embedded in the whole fabric of Kentucky's growth and life. Uh, so much so that um, 
uh, a professor by the name of James Hopkins at the University of Kentucky published a book, this goes back in the early 1950s, called A History of, of the Hemp Industry in Kentucky. And when I first got uh, the idea of, um, of promoting possibly a hemp film, I found a copy of Hopkins' book. And honestly, it's spectacular. Um, and it's just a start thing, but nevertheless, it introduced me to a whole lot of, of the story of hemp in Kentucky. And he spends a great deal of his time talking about hemp as it existed when he wrote the book. Um, but he gives you enough of its early history to make you think, well, this, 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 this crop has been around and has been used and has been useful for a heck of a long time. And um, so don't you think this would be something that would be good to cover in a film? And I, so it, that's what got me started. And then I just began collecting material from wherever um, about the story of hemp in, in this state in particular. And if you find it in this state, you'll find it elsewhere. You'll find all sorts of references to to hemp in Illinois, for instance, Missouri. Illinois and Missouri, as Kentucky became the, the, the leading uh, 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 state to grow and export hemp. Missouri, which is just next, just across the Mississippi River from us, um, it then became a leading hemp producer, as did Illinois, which is just north of uh, well, it's where the Ohio and the Mississippi River join one another. And, um, and anyway, Missouri and Illinois were composed of a lot of displaced Kentuckians. And um, a lot of the, your, your, chain, your, 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 your course of migration from the early colonies along the Atlantic coast to Kentucky ultimately went north into Indiana, Illinois, and then due west into Missouri, just the, just the course of migration. And the only one you have to look at is Abraham Lincoln's family. Where did they go when they left Kentucky in 1816? They went to uh, Indiana. They lived there for 14 years. And where else did they go? They went to Illinois, all of them. And what did they find in Illinois? A bunch of Kentuckians. And in fact, every law partner Abraham Lincoln had uh, in his entire career was a Kentuckian, including William Herndon, uh, John Todd Stewart, who went to my college, uh, uh, Center College in Danville, um, a cousin to Mary Todd, who was Abraham Lincoln's wife. I mean, um, you, you, you gotta be, you gotta be polite to everybody in Kentucky because they're probably the cousin of somebody, either, either your cousin or some cousin, a cousin of someone you really know well. So you gotta be complimentary of everybody. <laughs> you never know which bridge you'll be crossing again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, the, um, and you can see how hemp began to get to take off in Indiana and Illinois and Missouri. Well, they're Kentuckians. They've been growing hemp for years. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time of the Civil War, uh, those three states became hemp producers of significant size. And um, 
and frankly, what the, the, the war, when the war came to an end, civil war came to an end and um, the uh, 13th amendment uh, prohibited slavery once and for all, uh, hemp went into a decline. And the reason for it is just simple. It's a very labor intensive crop. And there's just a lot you have to do to get your fiber out of hemp. And it takes a lot of man hours. Now we have machinery today that helps with that, um, unlike our ancestors. And, um, but once they, you could not get the large amount of labor to oversee the raising of the crop, um, it went into decline. And it was in a decline really all the way through until World War II. And uh, that was a revive, it was revived by the government who then immediately after World War II, you know, wound up criminalizing the raising of it. So go figure, just go figure. <laughs> Back to the, you know, I think we have an opportunity and that's really what the industry needs is some government support to get out of this chicken and egg scenario that we're in of yeah. amount of crop that we need before our processors are built and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no question about it. Um, and again, I think the best way to present this uh, to the government is its history, its story. It's a beautiful story. It is a, it is a terrific story, really. And um, <clears throat> that's what got me hooked on it, is, is just, it's so, it touches so much of the parts of America and American history that we all know and love from great figures like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. You know, it's interesting, even John Adams. Now they raised hemp in Massachusetts. In fact, Massachusetts first hemp crop was with the Pilgrims mm -hmm. in 1620. Um, uh, but John Adams in January, 1776 was en route to Philadelphia for the meeting of the Second Continental Congress. And he wrote a note to the uh, secretary of the, of the um, Congress telling him, we need to do two things this term. We need to encourage the raising of hemp and we need to vote on independence. Mm. And you know what? The Second Continental Congress did both. So even independence, the Declaration of Independence, was drafted and signed. And by the way, those fellows who signed that, I mean, they, the first one who went up to, to sign his name to the Declaration commented to all the others, you know, we're signing our death warrants. Because to sign that was treasonous. And the Crown, Britain, if you were caught having signed that by the British, they'd execute you, they'd hang you. And they all said to one another, we're signing our death warrants. And yet they signed it. And at the same time, they passed resolutions encouraging the raising of hemp because of the war effort. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you imagine those two being considered in tandem? <laughs> It's, it's mind-boggling, really. It just goes to show the value, right? Right. right. The number of, right. The number of um, 
<laughs> you know, solutions that it brings to all yeah, right. And answers to uh, needs, answers to needs, um, whether it's to use the oils the, or, or the fiber, really, is where it's really big and where it's really, really, really uh, useful commercially. Well, and I look at too as being able to look at history um, to develop the, the markets in mm -hmm. our third and fourth world countries. Right. right? Because they don't have the equipment that we, we do here in the US, but they do still have the needs and the people and right. To, right. Right? being able to right. look back at, you know, what did supply chain look like? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you some a, a funny uh, a little history nugget here. Uh, uh, growing up in, in Lexington, um, I've known a lot of a lot of people here, of course, uh, but a lot of farmers sure. and a lot of what you would call very big farmers. I mean, there's some very big farms here and most of the big farms people think are just the horse farms. Okay. Well, those are very big and they're very impressive. It's very pretty. It's a beautiful thing to see, uh, almost mind boggling. But there are other farms that are very big that just raise crops. And um, one of them is out on the old Winchester Pike, um, owned by a friend of mine, and who's now passed away. But um, he sat there one day telling me how important it would be for Kentucky to again raise hemp. And um, I said, well, why do, you, why do you say, well, it's just because of its uses. He says, you know, when I was a kid, we all raised hemp. Everybody raised hemp. And uh, this is now, you know, before, during, and immediately after World War II. And I said, uh, was that for the war effort? He said, of course, it's for the war effort. And he said, you know what? He says, I can remember. It's this, this goes to how, how labor intensive it is to grow a crop like him. He says, I can remember uh, the German prisoners of war being used to harvest hemp in my backyard. <laughs> we forget that we forget that some, there were some German uh, detention centers uh, during World War II that yeah. included like White Sulphur Springs, the beautiful, spectacular White Sulphur Springs where we just love to go to White Sulphur Springs from here. Uh, but we forget that at one time it was a housing place for German prisoners of war. And, um, and they would use those German prisoners of war to do all kinds of necessary things. And, hemp being a very labor intensive crop, why not use them to harvest hemp? So they did. And this fellow was talking to me about what it was like to walk along the hemp fields and talk with, he was just a boy, to talk with German prisoners of war. And they speak in broken English, but they, you could communicate with them. And actually they were having a good time. I mean, they were in America, they were uh, out in the fields, you know, they weren't confined in some you know, stalag somewhere. They were, uh, they rather enjoyed themselves. <laughs> but uh, the story is remarkable, really. This hemp story in this state is just amazing. Just amazing. <laughs> it's so cool. Uh, <laughs> are there any facts that you hear thrown around that aren't necessarily true? One being, say, like the, the Constitution is written on compared to a draft of... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, hemp was used for paper. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, it had a huge use for paper. And it is not surprising that elements of whatever, for instance, the uh, Constitutional Convention produced in 1787 uh, might be written or printed on hemp paper. Uh, I don't understand the Constitution that is on display in the National Archives in Washington was on hemp paper. Uh, but there were plenty of documents produced by that convention, as also in the Congress before, that were, that were imprinted on hemp paper. Um, because hemp was a good source of paper. It really was. Another one of its incredible, versatile uses. And, um, <clears throat> but I don't think the Constitution or the Declaration were printed on hemp paper. Um, what are some of the best facts? You've shared a lot on here, right? What's something that really, when you learned of it, you were just like, wait, what? Or maybe a fact that for me, when I realized the time at which plastics became really, you know, hit the market and hemp yeah. slowed down, yeah. that was an aha moment for me as to where our solution could have been compared to where we're at now with our, you know, ocean of plastic. Yeah. Um, yeah so I'm kind of curious from you, what were some of those that really took you by surprise or? Well, maybe- I mean, I, I actually always, once I got into studying hemp and I and I must say now I mean we're we're not at a stage where we're we've been, I have been working at it to the point where we could write a script on it we need to raise the capital and all that kind of stuff but I just in my casual interest in history and in American history and in Kentucky history uh, I have uh, done some work in the history of hemp and and enjoy everything about it uh, what what does strike me though is the um, after World War II the treatment of hemp by the federal government. I mean, all the way up until it was criminalized under Richard Nixon. Uh, I it, you know I can understand the the connection between hemp and marijuana and how that may play. That's what the government claimed it was the role was. I've also read where, you know, many of those industries that were rivals of hemp using other materials uh, were behind much of the effort to get rid of hemp. Uh, and that may be true. I, I, I really have not studied it with that detail in mind uh, to come to a real conclusion about that. But I think the idea of, of, of literally criminalizing it uh, and discouraging the the production of it uh, was stunning. That was stunning. After seeing all of its uses all those years from the earliest settlement of America to then, why now? Why, why do you want to do that to a crop that can be this useful? Um, well, it didn't make any sense to me. I mean, if people were using it for a, for, 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 for a means that was unlawful, well, that's one thing. But to simply discourage by taxing mostly and by government regulations, just, and boy, you can't, that's the, that's the best way to discourage anything. Get a government to, to, to promulgate a regulation about it. 
I spent half my, almost all my 46 years as a lawyer fighting government regulations. Mm -hmm. And um, get them to do something and you'll really screw it up. I mean, uh, which is what they did. And um, they made it almost impossible. And so it died completely, just plain died. And uh, only recently have we seen a revival of it. And I find that to be shocking, given its long, long history. Shocking that we're just now seeing a revival of it. Yeah, we're seeing a revival, an interest. And uh, again, I think the best way one can encourage an interest is to make a film about it and put it on television everywhere you can put it. Okay. Make it people's patriotic duty to raise him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really exactly. what is, in, in essence, that's what we were, we're interested in doing. Yeah. 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 Tell me about, obviously you've talked about a lot of your views and the impact that some of your other videos have made, right? Um, talk to me about how, you know, how, how it, people can get involved in this film and by getting involved, where does it benefit me? You know, what's that, what's in it for me question? Yeah. Well, what we, what we need, we need to raise about $250,000 to make a film like that. And this is about a 90-minute uh, film. I like 90-minute films. Yeah. Uh, PBS at times likes to tell me, well, you know, they're kind of hard to... I said, you can get over it. You've done those for me before. But you would like to have a film that is long enough to where you can really get into the weeds with what you want to say and present enough story that you want to present so that people come away from it going, you know, wow, isn't that neat? And um, if it's too short, then they dismiss it. And so I like a film that's 90 minutes. Our, our longest film we've ever made is the uh, Daniel Boone and the opening of the American West. And it's in two parts. On, you can see it on the YouTube channel. And between those two parts, we have two and a half million people watching that. And I get nothing but comments about it on my email. These comments go into YouTube, but they get on my email as well. And every, every day, you get people going, I love that Daniel Boone. Thank you very much for producing that. You know, and these are people you can tell by uh, the, their sentence structure and so forth. They, they may not be, you know, the... The, the professor down at the local university. But these people are ones you have to get to. And these are the good souls in America who, if you present them something that uh, one entertains them to the, to the degree they stay with the story all the way to the end and don't cut it off. Mm -hmm. If you do that and present to them the, the basic facts you want, you would want any citizen to know about their, their history, then by gosh, you can win them. You win them over. And uh, because really American history is nothing but a, 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 a chain of great stories. And uh, that's how I look at it. I love it. Well, you've proven to do it already, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
noticed on your website, um, on, and I'll share the link again to the the hemp video, right? Yeah. Um, right. Remind me the name. Talk to me about the name of the video again. It's called The Seed and Fiber of Wealth. There you go. And uh, what you do is go on the website, witnessinghistory.org. And uh, when the when the homepage comes up, you 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 go up at the top and it has news mm -hmm. and you punch news and all the news stories that we have come up. And then you scroll down into page two of news and there you'll find the seed and fiber of wealth. And you click that on and a whole new website comes up. And um, it gives you a beautiful color photograph, a, a photograph of a painting of a, of a hemp field with the, uh, the hemp drying in the fields uh, in their almost teepee shaped uh, um, uh, manner. And as you get into it, it'll give you what history is gonna be covered by the film. It gives you a narrative of what it might look like. Um, it gives you photog a photography of great portraits, paintings, paintings of the USS Constitution in action and uh, uh, paintings of, uh, of uh, some of the earliest settlers of, uh, of Virginia, uh, paintings of, of our, many of our founding fathers. Um, and um, the object is to just give you a feel for what it might look like. And, um, but it's really, you, to tell the story of hemp in America is to tell the story of America all the way up until the Civil War. That's the story of America, is the story of him. I love the perspective of the history, right? Not just what today. So talk to me about today, you mentioned this shift, you know, that we're really starting to see the focus go back to hemp. Yeah. Or come back. Yeah. What do you as think? You'll see. As you, go ahead. What do you I'm think is driving that? I'm sorry? What do you think is driving that shift? Um, I think for, for many people, not quite enough yet, but for many people, uh, the idea of its versatility has reemerged. Hey, wait a minute, this is this thing, we can do a whole lot with this. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and, and what I as, I, as you'll read in, in, on, on, the, on the website, when you see this seed and fiber of wealth, mm -hmm. um, it, um, we go into, not only the deep history of it in America, but also what is being used, what it's being used for now. And what we'll want to do is spend the last 30 minutes of that film talking about hemp's uses today. So that we just not a history film. Right. It is a history film, but it brings you right up to date saying, here's what they're doing now. And here are some of the roadblocks that are existing to even greater production of this crop. And because um, we want people to see the whole story and the story right now of, um, of, this, uh, of this crop. This is so cool. I'm looking through your website right now and just you, you lay out a lot of history, a lot of it, key things that have happened yeah. in history. Um, there's places where you can get in and sponsor or donate, which is yes, great. Right, right. Um, and we have various levels of donation from platinum, you know, to gold, to whatever. 
and uh, these uh, uh, those on the highest levels, you know, will be referenced on the film in the credit roll at the end. Uh, uh, we're doing a film right now on the coming of the American Revolution. We're doing a three-part series on the revolution. And um, a fellow yesterday called me who's out to, uh, he has a number of people who want to contribute to that film. And he says, now tell me, what's the cutoff line for having your name on the film? <laughs> and, I, and I gave him a figure and he says, okay, I'll tell all my friends, you know, so <laughs> they all want to get on the film. <laughs> and, and of course, they're very big contributors to a, to a production like this are considered executive producers. Yeah. And um, many of our films we've made before this uh, have been financed not only by individuals and we send appeals out far and wide, um, but also by foundations that, that support a, a work like this. Uh, they find it necessary and needy, uh, countries needy of, of, of films like this. And so we get support from, from foundations all across the country. Um, this Revolutionary War film is a, a foundation in Atlanta, Georgia, is the biggest sponsor of it. Oh, and, really? um, and yet this film is all about Boston, you know? <laughs> you know, it's a story of, of how the revolution started mm -hmm. and why it started. And, you know, if there's ever anything, some people, everybody, not some people, but every, everyone should know and understand is really how it got started and why. And you can immediately connect yourself with things that are happening today. You just can't. And you see how they dealt with it and what they had to do and how much they suffered in Boston uh, because of English-British retribution for their positions with respect to tax. You've always heard this taxation without representation. Well, it was in fact that. I mean, parliaments passing bills that tax the colony's use of vellum paper. And it uh, didn't matter how the paper came about from hemp, whatever it was, they taxed it. And so you couldn't pick up a newspaper without paying a tax. And here the colonists saying, you know, we don't even have any representatives over there. There's nobody representing us. How the heck do they know what we can bear in terms of tax? And it got worse and worse and worse. And by 1768, there were 2000 British troops in Boston. Now that's nice. The, the king sends a whole, you know, a, several, several regiments of British troops into your town. Now, what do you think that's supposed to do? Right. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And um, uh, it tells you one story, and that is how not to govern people. Well, and you can do it that way. You can be ruthless about it, and you get, you get this. You well, can like be understanding of them and you get a different result. Right. Well, like you said before, right? By evaluating history is how we keep from making the same mistakes. And That's exactly right. Learn. It's, it's exactly it's, right. It, it, what it also does is it helps us to reach, you know, by, by mixing video and entertainment with history, it gives us an opportunity to connect with those people, like you said, that we're not connecting with. Through we're not connecting with them. Right. Uh, we, we, this, this foundation has had just tremendous fortune in connecting with these people. Uh, but I want to see it, you know, 
50 million people watching these things. Uh, be, and I think someday we'll get there. But um, the object is keep producing them. And as often as we can produce them and as, and as high a quality as we can possibly give them. Yeah. And um, it is fun, though, to uh, have someone call you up from some distant state like Illinois. And uh, this happened to me just recently where I was given a speech at Virginia Tech. A Civil War symposium was being held there. And one of my fellow speakers is a fellow who lives in Champaign-Urbana. And um, he, uh, he called me up and he said, Kent, are you gonna, when are you going to go to, uh, to, to, to Virginia Tech? And I gave him a day. He says, oh, by the way. I just saw uh, in the declaration, all men are created equal, Abraham Lincoln in Illinois. He says, what a hell of a movie like this. And so it, those things really do, you kind of go, oh, wow, that's really kind of fun. <laughs> and here he is in Champaign-Urbana. And, you know, I never even communicated with the PBS affiliate in um, Champaign-Urbana. They got it from NETA, N-E-T-A, uh, signaled it to everybody, and they picked it, downloaded it. And interestingly, um, Right after that film got its first broadcast in Illinois, the president of the Abraham Lincoln uh, 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 Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield called me and asked me, he says, Kent, he said, would it be possible for us to be the um, uh, sponsor of that movie on television here in Illinois? And I go, would it be possible? I said, it'd be advisable. <laughs> I said, I'd be delighted. So they cut, what is it, 40 second ads to put at the front and back of that film. So now it's being brought to you by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. Awesome. And yet, I said, this is exactly the type of, type of symbiosis we, we want, you know. And he says, you know what's amazing, Ken? He said, people are coming in here telling us uh, they've, they've come to the library because they watched your movie. And I said, see, see, see how this works? And I said, so sure, be the, be the, be the sponsor. Says, you, you got carte blanche. And so uh, that's how it's being broadcast in Illinois. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome. Great? So I'm going to share this and your information off of your website um, okay. the video in our newsletter that goes out. We've got a monthly okay. that goes to about 10,000 people. Okay. So we'll that because I think like you said this is an opportunity for the the industry itself and or people that are interested in the growth of the industry right. to get involved because this is a key piece that we just don't talk a lot about the history of hemp really stops at what we know and there's a lot of people that don't take the time to investigate or look into what you've done and what you've been able to put together so it's pretty by the awesome. way I want to tell you something I want to give a shout out to yeah. one of your directors yeah. The board of directors. Uh, John Porterfield. Yes. <laughs> John, John is the, the earliest contributor to that, to the hemp film. Awesome. And after he contributed, we had the, you know, the lockdowns and the pandemic and everything just collapsed. But um, we're gearing this up again now. But he is the earliest contributor we have. And um, He's also one of the nicest guys, West Virginia fellow. Um, um, I just adore him and I love what he does uh, out in, the, in Montana. Yeah, great, he's a uh, great fellow. Yeah, good man. Well, good. A good man. 
Um, I actually thought about him when you scheduled this appointment. And like, <laughs> Has he told you about it? <laughs> yeah, you and I have talked about this before. About a year and a half ago, John introduced us and we just briefly talked about this. Really? And, yeah. Good old John. I love him. I love him. <laughs> well, don't hesitate to holler at me if you need anything. And if anybody listening or watching needs anything, don't hesitate to reach out to either of us. Ken, if someone wants to get in, in touch, is it through the website that they get in touch with you? You, or you, you can. I could give you uh, uh, email addresses. Uh, KMB at USA.net is the one I use the most. Okay. And uh, so I would, uh, there's a witnessing history uh, uh, a site, but I rather have it on the KMB at USA.net uh, because that's the first thing I see in the morning. I'll add that to the newsletter so that That'd when it fine. comes, we can connect with you. You, you bet. Hey, well, Kent, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great. I'm excited to continue having these conversations. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I'm here. This is what I do. <laughs> um, anything that we can do to help, you know, let's continue to brainstorm and how we get more people involved. And uh, yeah, that's the key. That's the key. I, I learned right at the beginning, the only way you can raise capital for a film like this is through the industry. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because other people just don't have a clue. Um, we want to change that. But I mean, a lot of people just don't have a clue that this is something they would want to underwrite. So yeah. um, it really is going to have to come from the industry if it's going to happen. I agree. So yes, indeed. I think this is the way to do it. Okay. Well, I love it. Well, thank you very, very much. We'll be You're in welcome. I've enjoyed being with you. Yes, tomorrow we've got a uh, seeds and genetics discussion at uh, 9 a.m. Mountain Time. So you can find that for anybody that's listening on our YouTube, sorry, not on our YouTube channel, on our website, globalhempassociation.org. We've got an awesome guest, Matt Haddad. And um, just talking about genetics, seeds, same thing on the other side, more on the technical versus the history and education, but valuable at nonetheless. So Absolutely. anyways, thank you guys very much. <laughs>